In our most recent podcast, Roger Parloff gave us an inside look at the Proud Boys trial, which has been underway in the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia since January the 12th. In this follow-up to Mr. Parloff, who has been live-tweeting the trial from the beginning, we asked Dr. Megan Squire, a computer scientist, how she applies data science techniques to track and expose what she calls networks of hate and extremism online. She has studied the Proud Boys since 2017. Dr. Squires has recently joined the Southern Poverty Law Center to continue her research. Megan Squire, when did you first become interested in data and at the same time in political data? Yeah, so I'm trained as a computer scientist and I worked in academia for many years. Uh, As part of my role, I would uh, come up with research projects and carry those out. And I've always been interested in collecting large data sets about social issues, social problems. I studied uh, software development teams for a little while and looked at how they were toxic to their to each other, you know, folks on the team. And around 2016, I started looking at political discourse um, online in social media, like Facebook, Twitter, things like that, and trying to understand how people were talking to one another in those spaces. Pretty quickly came around to the rise of the alt-right as a phenomenon and um, shifted my research into studying uh, those groups particularly, especially on Facebook at the time. How would you define alt-right? Yeah, so back in the 2016 timeframe, there was this sort of, um, I guess, a younger wing of uh, conservative folks who were using um, social media, memes, podcasts, things like that, to try to reinvigorate um, some pretty old fascist ideas. And so they rebranded themselves as um, alt-right, so an alternative to the traditional right. There were some figures at the time, Richard Spencer, I don't know if anybody remembers him, but he was kind of the figurehead of that um, that ilk. Pepe the Frog, that was the sort of era, that was that era. But they've, um, you know, kind of fallen apart since then for a bunch of different reasons. And so that term has fallen out of favor. We don't, we don't say alt-right as much anymore. Um, also, uh, the ideas that those guys espouse, those fascistic tendencies, um, sort of mainstreamed after 2016. And so um, the alt part doesn't really apply so much anymore. Define fascism or fascist <laughs> as you are applying it to this group. Yeah, that's pretty tough. Uh, I might be stepping out of my wheelhouse a little bit here as a computer scientist, but typically we're looking at groups that are hard right, far right, racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic, any of those um, umbrella terms. That's the types of groups that my team and the, the folks that I work with study and try to understand um, hate groups, extremist groups, sometimes violent, always um, <laughs> always extreme. And yeah, we try to figure out how to define those groups, how to find them, how, what they believe in, uh, and then how to label them, you know, how to give them a, a descriptor so that other folks can understand what they're about and why they are dangerous. Can you remember when you formulated your own views about political figures? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't know. Probably high school time frame, I guess. Um, I remember going on some school field trips to um, environmental causes. I was like in the environmental club or something like that. And so we would go on trips. And I remember thinking that, you know, 
whatever what I was seeing was was bad or negative or things like that. But um, but it's been a while. <laughs> I'm much older now, so I've seen a few more a uh, few more trips. Where did you get your education? I did my undergrad at William and Mary. I was a, a art history major, public policy double major. And then after um, I graduated, I worked for a little while in the art industry, um, pretty quickly got assigned to the tasks of building the databases and administering the network and setting up web pages, which were new at the time, and realized that I really loved the computing aspect of what I was doing and the organizing the data and keeping everything sort of in line. And um, so I went back to grad school in uh, computer science and ended up getting PhD in that. So my, my story is a little bit different than probably most people who have taught or have, you know, advanced degrees in, in computer science. I definitely did not come from, from that background. So the proud boys <laughs> last week in our podcast, we talked to a man who is live tweeting the proud boys trial and got to follow up with you to find out what you know about the Proud Boys and what you studied about them. Yeah, so they're one of the first groups that I studied when I mentioned that I, I switched my research focus to studying um, online and then offline um, p political activity, especially on the far right. Proud Boys were one of the first groups that I noticed um, in my, my, my life because they were actively um, uh, participating in events on the ground in North Carolina where I lived at the time. And actually, they still are. To this day, but in the 2017 timeframe, they were <clears throat> showing up at rallies. They were hosting their own rallies, particularly around like anti-Muslim events, um, um, the MAGA style, you know, Trump type events. And they were very hard for me to understand and classify at the time. So I was collecting a lot of social media posts and trying to understand, you know, what what they what their ideology was, what they believed in, and then um, cross-referencing those with who showed up at the events um, on the ground. And Proud Boys were so strange because they seemed to be promoting themselves as like a drinking club, right? Like this just casual social club. But they also had this very strange set of bylaws and a very specific long list of beliefs and things like that. So they presented a bit of a of an issue for me as a researcher, you know, trying to figure out how to classify them and how to study them and who to compare them to. Um, but yeah, so I, I've been looking at them for coming up on five years, I guess more than five years now. What did you start to learn about them, and who's the one or two people in the Proud Boys that stuck out for you? Yeah, I mean, originally, I was looking at them more as a group trying to understand who the people were so that I could even answer that question. Um, one of the things that I did right away was start building um, a, kind of a map, a network map of, of who is who in the group. And to do that, I used a couple different data sources. I used um, Facebook data, so who was joining the groups um, on Facebook, the vetting groups and the different um, interest groups, fan pages, that kind of thing. And then I also started collecting financial data about who was paying who within the Proud Boys. And my goal there was to understand the structure of the group. So who are the leaders, who are the followers, who's taking the money, who's giving the money, what kind of events are they hosting, that sort of thing. And after building out those network maps, it became pretty clear that there was a cell structure in the group. So there were um, geographically oriented cells, like clubs, basically, which we knew. But what we didn't know was who was in charge of those groups necessarily. Some of, the, some of them we knew, but we didn't know all of them. And my work also revealed some, some cells that we didn't, or that I didn't know existed and wasn't sure how big they actually were. So from there, um, I was able to identify, I would say, I think it was between eight and 10 um, really powerful leaders. They were the ones who were kind of financially controlling um, the, the different 
regional groups. And um, three, I believe three out of those were on trial in this latest, um, this latest fracas due to J6 activities. There were also some other ones, other guys that weren't um, as connected to January 6th, but were active earlier in the Proud Boys. So. At the table in the current case is Enrique Tario, mm-hmm. yeah. Dominic Pozzola, mm-hmm. Joseph Biggs, Ethan Nordine, and Zachary Real. Yeah, or- Ethan, um, he went by Rufio Panman at the time. Ethan Nordine, um, Tario, and Biggs were three, definitely three of the leaders that made it into my research pretty early on. The other two were lesser known, and there was a whole cast of, of you know, sort of B-list Proud Boys um, that aren't on this particular trial, but have been in, you know, all kinds of legal cases and investigations and all this sort of thing. So it's a pretty big organization. Um, but yeah, those are the big five that we're, we're thinking about right now with this trial. So w- give me a sense of what you learned specifically about any of them. And how do you gather information from Facebook? Yeah. So what I learned from building the network map of payments, for example, is that we'll use Ethan Ordina as a great example. He was named an elder of the group um, in 2019. So we knew that he was, that they considered him a leader, but what we didn't know is just how financially connected he was. He was um, apparently taking dues for his chapter. He was um, you know, purchasing tickets, doing fundraisers, that sort of thing. So he was not only connected in a, in a titular role, but he was uh, financially um, run, managing a large portion of Proud Boys, particularly the ones in the Pacific Northwest. Um, as far as how I collect the data, so that's, <laughs> yeah. So this is where the computer science part comes in. So at the 2017-18 uh, timeframe, it was pretty easy to get data from, from Facebook. Uh, what The data that I was going after was the uh, group membership rosters. So I would you know, tell Facebook computer programs, hey, I'm interested in this uh, Proud Boys group give me back all the members and it, and it would there was a little programmer feature called an API that we used to to gather that data out and so then I would move that data into the big big collection big database and then set about drawing you know pictures of it making the network maps and so on around the beginning of 2018 though Facebook removed that feature they they no longer allowed um, folks like me researchers to get the the data that that we needed to answer those questions and they said that they did that because of the Cambridge Analytica scandal where they were um, found to be, I guess, inadvertently, we'll say, um, assisting researchers who maybe didn't have such a a good purpose behind what they were doing. They were actually like tricking people and sort of, you know, building these these crazy um, data mining machines. And so all of us got locked out at that point of the from the API um, at Facebook. So I had to turn to other sources to learn about probably. So that's when I started the financial investigation. So what I did there was I used a, a different data source called Venmo, which is a payment system that the Proud Boys were using to, to pay one another. It's kind of like, you know, I send you a 10 bucks and you send me back five or whatever for whatever we're doing. And so they were definitely using the system to, to pay one another. And that data, luckily for me, was all public by default, so I didn't have the um, the issues with getting you know getting access to it like I did with the Facebook side. Well, why would it be public? 
by default? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. And a lot of people wondered that too. So Venmo just, that was their rule was that your financial stuff was public by default, they called it. You actually had to, when you create an account, you had to click through five different screens that confirmed that you understood that what you were putting on there was public. And so people just thought it was fun to like send money back and forth with little emojis and little, you know, cutesy messages on it. Um, there was multiple studies that people did before, you know, way before me showing, you know, folks buying and selling drugs on there and all kinds of, you know, illicit stuff happening. Um, there was even a news article about someone uncovering President Biden's um, Venmo account, I guess. And so right after that happened, they actually changed the policy. And so now it's no longer public by default. But um, but during that heyday, the 2018-19 timeframe, like, yeah, the Proud Boys were using it just openly to, to transact business. They had everything on there from dues collection, you know, so-and-so would pay so-and-so, here's your $20 for dues and $10 for the hat, you know, so they were selling merch, they were taking dues, and then some of the chapters, especially the ones in the um, northeast of the United States, they were using it to collect money to rent buses to like drive across state lines and beat up counter protesters at our protesters at events and things. So, I mean, they were pretty brazen. They were using this tool pretty openly. So it was very trivial for me to construct a network of um, who was paying who for what. I got about 200 and some, I think it was 205, maybe Proud Boys, um, confirmed Proud Boys that were, they were paying each other using Venmo. So it was an interesting network. What kind of money are we talking about? So that's that's another thing. On Venmo, you can't see the amounts unless they type it in the comment. So I could just see that person X was paying person Y, but I couldn't necessarily see how much, unless incidentally they they managed to um, to mention it. So I can't really estimate that. I did learn a few things though. They they did type the amount that dues were. So I learned it was for most chapters it was twenty dollars a month. I did learn uh, when they were hosting events and that they were selling tickets for those events because they would mention that in the comments too. So I learned a lot of things, but unfortunately the hard financial numbers were, were not one of those things. Um, later though, <laughs> in 2020, I started a different project, um, which gave me a little bit more insight into a new way that, that the Proud Boys and other groups were making money. It had nothing to do with Venmo at all but they were collecting um, money through video live streams. So they would host a live stream and like, you know, like we're talking right now, guests and hosts and all of that stuff, but they would ask for donations during the stream. And I found a way to collect that financial data. And so from there, I was able to learn, yeah, exactly how much they were making, Proud Boys and other groups also, um, but how much they were making during these live streams. There was, uh, usually it was pretty low, you know, 50, 100 bucks a night, but there was one night in December of 2020, so right during like the whole Stop the Steel Madness and before J6, Proud Boy, uh, there was a Proud Boy video stream that um, kind of just shocked me because when I saw the graph come through on my screen, all of a sudden there was a huge spike on this night. It was the day that President Trump said, um, you know, kind of enticing people to come to January 6th, and he said, it's going to be wild. Remember that, that tweet that he did? It's going to be, it'll be wild. On that day, the Proud Boys got really excited and their video stream donations went through the roof. Like it was just, um, I think they earned 10 times more that day than they did on a normal stream. So um, it was about $2,500, I think, just for that one stream. Go, good. Go that back. was pretty small potatoes though, compared to some of the other groups I study that were much better at video, video donations. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Go back, though, to the Facebook yeah. and Venmo yeah. information. From your own personal philosophical view, what do you think of the idea of this kind of thing being public in the first place? Yeah, I, if you, I mean, I didn't think that Facebook should have allowed that API access. In fact, when I discovered that it was available, I was kind of shocked. Um, but then I said, well, gosh, you know, I do have this research question. Who's in these groups? Um, so let me just collect the data while it's there. I don't know why they allowed us to get it. I don't know why it was. I mean, I guess if they're going to allow us to get it, I'm glad that it was free and I'm, you know, open for everyone to to use equally. But yeah, it did surprise me a little bit that that was open. Um, Venmo was also open. They didn't have as easy, by the time I got into the Venmo data, it wasn't as easy to scrape out. I, I couldn't write code to do it. They had blocked that, but I was able to construct the data set manually, right? So it was open and transparent. I just had to do a little more work, but with the Facebook data, not only was it open and transparent, but it was like easily downloadable, very, very straightforward for me to write programs to go get that data. I'm glad, I'm, you know, I guess I'm glad they shut it down. I wasn't at the time. I was really, really mad because I had this big, you know, longitudinal research idea and this whole plan of how I was going to study this, these groups and the memberships over many years and try to understand this, you know, this big hairy question. And so I was mad at first when they shut it down, but then I realized that it probably was, they probably should have had it shut down to begin with. And um, it also freed me up to study other things. I didn't realize at the time I would need to do, but since then I, I was, I had to get more creative, right. And look for alternative sources for data. And I ended up answering more questions than just that one. So it was all fine. In, yeah. In it, just, mi- it surprised me. <laughs> in the middle of this trial going on right now, one of the big issues is what came first, the Proud Boys or Donald Trump? From your oh, from your yeah. perspective, what what would you how would you answer that question? Yeah, they were each. It was both and. So when I mean, we know when Gavin McInnes uh, launched the Proud Boys, we know when he started it. It was October of 2016. So that's you know right before the election. Donald Trump is ascendant. Everyone's extremely excited about him, and you know on the on the right anyway. He's extremely excited about him and his, um, you know, his promise really for cracking down on immigration and anti-Muslim and anti, just all of that. They were really, really energized. The extreme far right was very energized by by him and his candidacy. And so, um, I think probably he, maybe he, maybe if we had to pick whether it was the chicken or the egg, maybe maybe it was him first. But um, I think maybe with Proud Boys in particular, it was him first. But the rumblings about uh, this alt-right and this um, very online meme-centered, misogynist, hateful, you know, that, that there might be some room for that. That had been growing bef- before Trump. And so that um, you know, 2014, 15, when there was an incident called Gamergate, which I don't know if you know, this is a very online reference, but it was uh, pretty big in the social media spaces where there was a lot of um, hate and vitriol directed at women 
um, it started off in the gaming community, but then sort of broadened out from there. And a lot of the figures that were involved in that movement ended up fueling these, what we were talking about earlier, these alt-right groups um, and that energy. We see some of that with the launch of the Proud Boys too. So it's all of a piece, really. Um, it, by 2016, 2017, this was definitely a symbiotic relationship. They were, you know, the groups were feeding on Trump. Trump was feeding on the groups. And, you know, the beginning of 2017, I think it was, you know, every weekend it felt like there was some kind of Trump rally where they would meet up and, you know, show of force in the streets. There was several in Berkeley, California, for example, that became known as the Battles of Berkeley, where people were just felt emboldened by Trump and his um, his words, really, and his actions. In the trial, the word telegram comes up a lot. Have you studied telegram? And in my limited look at where they're from, they're based outside of this country. Who are they? What do they do? And why would the Proud Boys be using Telegram? Great questions. Telegram is so important in this space. And yes, I've studied it extensively. So it's a company that was started by two Russians, two brothers. Um, they also previously had started a social media company called VK, which then I think it's now owned by the Russian government. They left Russia and are now in Dubai where they run this little, uh, well, it used to be little, it's not so little anymore, but this company called Telegram, it's a, it's a platform, so social media platform. It's, it has some features that are similar to Facebook or Twitter. You can create a user account, send messages, that kind of thing. It does have some um, encryption features, which is one of the reasons why it got popular outside the U.S. Um, pretty early on. People u- wanted to use the uh, messaging technology with ostensibly with end-to-end encryption so that their communications couldn't be read by governments, let's say. Uh, Telegram, though, it's interesting. They've never really shown that they have actually implemented end-to-end encryption. They they just want you to take their word for it. But anyway, that's more of a <laughs> computer nerd discussion we'll set to the side. But assuming that they do have this, um, the app lets you create an account, message back and forth with people. And then it has some features that are similar to like Facebook groups or pages where you can kind of do more outward communication, more propaganda, we'll say, like you can post memes and share files and that kind of thing. It's very well known as an app outside of the US. It's up until 2020 timeframe was much less known inside the US. Very few, you know, people used it because there were so many other social media options in the United States. But in 2020, some of the social media companies started cracking down on these bigger groups. Well, I think sometimes before 2022, but Proud Boys, for example, um, there are a couple other these social media platforms that sprung up to try to be little, uh, I guess, alternative alt tech, we call them platforms like Parler, Getter, this kind of thing. And Telegram became just another one of those for groups who had been deplatformed or removed from regular social media for their behavior, such as harassing people or spam, you know, that kind of thing. They got kicked off Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, and were looking for a new home. And Telegram became one of those choices. For some groups, it became the biggest and you know fastest choice for them. It had a lot of features. It's pretty easy to use. It's free. There's no ads things like that. So, um, so, yeah, a lot of groups like the Proud Boys ended up on Telegram. How much can you study Telegram? How much is available to you? I love studying Telegram. So it's basically a lot of the freedoms that I used to have on Facebook 
still exist for me to study on Telegram. So it's um, pretty straightforward to pull data out of there. Um, yeah, you can get a lot. You can get. I won't bore the audience, but you can get a lot of stuff. Well, when it's something like I am not computer uh, <clears throat> facile, but it. it, it is it difficult? Do you have to have a computer science degree in order to be able to download information from Telegram? No, no. You, I mean, anyone can go in and read the, the content on there. That's pretty straightforward. And then if you wanted to make a copy of the content, they have a little easy downloading. You know, you just click, click, click to download. The kind of stuff that would require, you know, big data expertise would be if I wanted to do a study, which I have done, <laughs> let's say where I would, um, you know, download 10,000 Telegram groups, all the members, all the content, and then set about, you know, doing a textual analysis of the content or, or that kind of thing, um, or setting up bots to do automated scraping and stuff like that. Um, and all of that's certainly doable, and you would need a little bit of, um, you know, expertise in how to set that up. But but yeah, they allow everything from simple simple access all the way up to to programmatic access. Define bot. Oh, a bot. So yeah, Telegram has this neat bot infrastructure, we call it. So it allows you as a user of the platform to actually program the platform. So if it if you want to add a feature that it doesn't have, it has a way to let you do that. So people have been quite creative in coming up with ways to extend the, the feature set of Telegram. You can take payments on there. You can automate um, the moderation of your chat room. You can make people pass a test before they are allowed to join. You can just do all these little sort of administrative or interesting tasks that you that may not come with the platform built in, but you can add them on yourself. How are bots used? So then some of the ways that I just mentioned, like as performing administrative tasks or taking payments, um, doing little polling surveys. I'm talking like negatively, though, when people, oh, neg- oh. when you read the oh, stories yeah. and they say that, you know, all this is bot driven. <laughs> yeah. So bots um, on Telegram are, are a little bit more um, mild, I would say. Some of them just perform tasks for you that are not not politically motivated or whatever. It's more like just um, housekeeping tasks. But on other platforms like Facebook and Twitter, um, bots have certainly been used to great effect to automate uh, user signups. So, you know, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars, and you're going to give me twelve hundred, you know, Facebook accounts that all like this one page to artificially inflate the importance of the page, or to make, um, you know, make it look like there's anger where there's not, or to spread propaganda and that kind of stuff. And this has happened to pretty great, <laughs> pretty great effect on Twitter. There's, um, you know, just constant wondering if people's accounts are inflated by bots, if bots are promoting content or retweeting things. Yeah, it's kind of a matter of constant debate. Some of the platforms have come out with a little bit more information about how, how they've, you know, how bots are being used on, on there than others. Um, I would say on, on Telegram, they're actually a little bit, the ones I've seen are a little bit more boring than all of that. <laughs> Part of the reason is Telegram doesn't need to be exploited as much in that way because it's such a free-for-all. You can kind of do what you want on there, so there's not as much need to create evil bots to do it for you because you can just do it. Does that make sense? On, on Twitter, you know, you might need to be a little more cagey and create robotic systems to get what you want, but on Telegram, you can just go on there and be a Nazi. And it's kind of a, just a wide-open space. Is it safe to say that on Twitter, you can't say anything you want, but on Telegram, you can? 
That's pretty close. Yeah. I mean, both of the, you know, there's some wiggle room there on both sides. And I have seen some content removed from Telegram, but usually it's uh, the ISIS variety, you know, ISIS chat rooms and stuff like that. Um, uh, child, you know, sexual abuse material, things of, of that nature. But yeah, for the most part, it's considered, Telegram's considered a, a, a wild west. What should we make out of the fact that the founders of Telegram are for, they came from Russia? And why did they leave Russia? And how or why did they end up in Dubai? Yeah, I, I'm not really sure how they ended up in Dubai or why they picked that. I don't really, you know, Pavel Durov is the main founder that still runs Telegram, and he's pretty circumspect about giving out a lot of that, uh, a lot of those details. It is a private company still. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery. I'm not sure some of the motivations there. Um, a lot of things with Telegram don't make a whole lot of sense. I mentioned a moment ago that there's no ads, for example. Uh, it also doesn't cost money to get Telegram. So a lot of folks were wondering, like, well, how do you make your money? And on the frequently asked questions page for Telegram for a while, it was just like, this is a labor of love and we just pay for it out of our own pocket. Something. Hmm. So I <laughs> Yeah, the whole thing is a little bit uh, sketchy, let's say. One last thing on Telegram. I did see somewhere a scale that over the last several months, the numbers keep going up. And the last figure I saw was 700 million users. I don't know what that means, whether that's a day, a month, a year. But it looks like that they are getting more and more use if their numbers are accurate. And the reason I ask that is, is this an example of no matter what the United States government does about trying to control Facebook and Twitter and all this, there are going to be these internationalists where we can go to as people and use them with less restrictions? Yeah, I mean, that's the Internet, right? It's this borderless system. We try to put borders around it with things like trying to guess where somebody's coming from and what country they're in and all this. But really, at its nature, it's it's borderless. it's going to be very hard to control that kind of stuff. I think the big debate, or not debate, but the big um, focus of that kind of discussion right now is around the company TikTok, which is that um, massive, massively popular uh, platform that a lot of you know young folks are using. Well, folks of all ages, really, but young folks particularly are drawn to TikTok. It's these short video formats, and it's a um, company that's owned by a, a Chinese company. And so there was some concern during the, the Trump era about the data and where how, how TikTok was using data, what their rules and stuff were around that. And um, that's what that issue is where I've seen um, most of that discussion, not, not really so much around Telegram. In a recent article about you in the Washington Post, uh, this statement was made, the Proud Boys did not take kindly to Squire's work. Have you been yeah. <laughs> have you yeah. been threatened? Have you been give us the backstory on not taking kindly to your work? Yeah, I would say it's not it's not just Proud Boys. I mean, there's just a lot of this is a very politically fraught area to be in. So everyone from the platform companies to the, you know, the actual folks that are the, the, the subjects of the research, um, you know, they, they, are, they have varying levels of. <laughs> of uh, disagreement with the work, I guess. And so probably is just one example of that. Um, You know, I have studied their finances. I have studied their actions on social media. I've, you know, been to actual events in the real world uh, where they've showed up as well. And so they, some of them are aware of me and, um, and what I'm about. And yeah, they, 
they tried to make my work uncomfortable. So when I was at the university, for example, there was one guy in particular who kept um, trying to do rallies against me. None of them actually happened, but he did, you know, did hassle me on social media, did, um, yeah, the the usual kind of harassment um, behaviors. Uh, He also, posted a on telegram actually posted some of my private information he paid a data broker company to like run a dossier basically on me and um and my family and posted that on telegram it's interesting we were talking about how telegram is kind of a wild west so when i saw that he had posted that on there i said ah oh, geez let me let me get that taken down that that probably shouldn't be up there they have policies about you know posting private information and stuff so I reported it, nothing happened. I'd wait like a month and report it again, nothing happened. This is where I learned the limits of Telegram's content moderation. Um, they're basically, you know, it's up to them what they feel like deleting and there's no real recourse. So it was up for about 10 months. And I was talking to a reporter from Wired who was writing a story on Telegram. And I mentioned it to him. I said, you know, yeah, they, they put a a dossier about me up on up on telegram you know back in january it's still up there and he in the course of doing his reporting contacted someone from telegram just you know to ask questions about the report and mentioned this to them and they took it down <laughs> but it took that it took like some you know someone a, a real journalist i guess writing a story about this to and potentially calling um calling attention to the fact that they they have such lax content moderation and that this was an example of that but since you know since that happened i've heard so many more cases in fact there was a um a pod, another podcast that i was on where they interviewed women in russia who were being uh targeted on telegram and their information was being posted so this is not just a us thing this is like anyone anyone could be a victim of this they just don't have i think they, they just don't have the content moderation infrastructure that that other companies have and they haven't prioritized building that so you taught at Elon University for how long? I was there for almost 20 years. So I think it was 19 and a half years. Yeah. And why did you leave? So, uh, yeah, that was hard. I loved I loved my students. I loved my colleagues, academia, you know, the life of the mind and all of that. I loved doing my research projects, but I really felt uh, this urgency to be able to do the work that I'm doing, the research that I'm doing full time. So I needed to be able to focus. And the more I got into doing these kind of crazy projects with the big data and the, you know, all these different far right groups and trying to understand this fraught climate that we're in, it just sort of started taking over my cycles, right? I, I felt like at the end there, I felt like I was working two jobs. You know, I would do my research job and then I would do my teaching job and I just couldn't maintain both of those. So I took a leave um, in, I guess, 2021, I guess that, that academic year just to feel out like, what would it be like to do the research all the time? And so I pieced together, coupled together a couple of um, fellowships, one with SPLC, one with ADL, um, some other finances, financing arrangements. And then I, yeah, I, I loved it. I decided that this is what, this is what I wanted to do. I was able to finally just like focus, set out a research agenda that was robust and then carry that out without having to, you know, do another another whole job on the side, I guess. But but I do miss my students and my my friends at work. So, what are you doing for the Southern Poverty Law Center? Yeah. So in September of 
of last year, 22, I took on a full-time role at SPLC. So what we're doing there is very exciting in my opinion, but we're building a, what we're calling the data lab. And so this is going to be um, tools, techniques, humans, expertise, methodologies, all around tracking and exposing the, um, you know, how the far right works, how the extreme far right works um, digitally. So in their online spaces, in their finances, in their use of cryptocurrencies, um, all of that stuff. And so I'm building just all, the, all of that infrastructure to, to understand the sort of next generation of, of intelligence gathering really on how, how these groups operate. Where do you put the far left in all this? <laughs> I'm sure there's people, out, there's probably groups out there that study that. Um, I, we, you know, we have a mission at SPLC, which is to understand hate and extremism and, you know, dangers to democracy and all of, all of that jazz. And so we end up studying groups that are, that I guess most folks would classify as, as right, extreme far right type of groups. But the tools and techniques that I use, you know, you could you could study anything with them. You can doesn't even have to be a political cause. When I'm looking at, for example, tracing cryptocurrency, the techniques that I use there could be used for and are used um, for cybercrime, for you know, scams and all all kinds of other uh, areas. So, uh, yeah, the tools and techniques, the computer science, if you will, is um, is broadly applicable. What I'm finding is that a lot of the work that I do ends up ends up being able to be used by a variety of different, um, for a variety of different purposes. It doesn't only have to be political. Another name that is used, not every day, but it has been used a lot in the Proud Boys trial is a man named Bertino. Oh, yeah. Did you study him? Who is he? And they point out in the article that uh, the name he was using was... uh, (laughs) Onatreb, which is Bertino backwards. Yeah. Did you discover that? Was that one of your finds? Yeah, I mean that. You know, that's not, it doesn't take a computer scientist for that one. But, but yeah, he was um, doing a series of uh, stunts down, I think, down near Charlotte, North Carolina, where he it was. Anyway, the, the some of the news media picked up on these stunts, and, and he got a couple interviews, and one of them I think was with the Washington Post, actually. Um, and he gave that name on a trip and I didn't think much of it. I just thought, oh, that's a weird name. I never heard that before, but I remembered what he looked like. And he later showed up to a rally outside of, um, where I live down here in central North Carolina. And he, um, someone, one of my friends posted a picture of him on, um, their social media and said, I wonder who this guy is. You know, he's really harassing us. He's being really, um, you know, kind of out of line and I said I think I know who that is and I pulled the article from Washington Post and as I was looking at the name it struck me that it was backwards and so I posted um, that to her you know social media and he was very displeased (laughs) he did not like that someone had figured out his ruse of spelling his name backwards Um, he was actually the one that a minute ago I mentioned wanted to host uh, rallies against me and stuff at the university so I, I think I um I don't know. I got a, I got him a bit annoyed with 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 figuring out his little spelling trick. But I think wasn't he stabbed? 
Um, he, he did get stabbed, yes. So he was one of the participants on the December 12th, again, 2020, Stop the Steal pre-J6, you know, that sort of ra- let's rally in D.C. every weekend in support of President Trump, that kind of thing. Um, he was one of the participants in that December 12th, I think it was, um, event, which at night had a, a, quite a bit of violence, um, you know, mayhem of all sorts. And yes, one of the incidents was... Um, I think it was a mutual stabbing or at least one or two stabbing. Anyway, he got stabbed in that and it was quite badly injured, I think. Is he, did he plead guilty on, on uh, this whole Proud Boys thing? He turned state's evidence. So he decided to cooperate um, with the investigation and yeah. He hasn't been on the stand yet, but uh, I'm sure there's plenty of time with this thing's going to go on for a while. Yeah, I think so. But you say, or they implied, you said, in the Post article, that the trial offers the promise of long-awaited accountability. Let's hope. I mean, these guys were really menaces to to many communities, real-world communities, not just online, but they would show up in real-world spaces and harass people and just generally make people's lives miserable. And so... Yeah, there's just so many folks that have been affected by their nonsense. Um, It's going to feel really nice, I think, to folks to see some accountability from the top, Enrique, all the way down to some of these, you know, more marginal figures. Um, I think it's not over, though, because there are only five of them in this particular trial. And Proud Boys isn't, you know, nationwide, or they like to think maybe even international size of group so there are still you know there's still some chapters out there that are doing stuff there's still there's still some energy behind um what they're trying to accomplish but this this will be maybe not the a death blow to the organization right but it'll be significant i remember in the um days after the unite the right um incident in charlottesville that deadly day um the, the lawsuits that you know, that were filed after that really did take the wind out of a lot of the groups that were involved in the planning and the orchestration of that event. And so there's always a chance, right, that these kinds of moves, whether it's a civil case, criminal, whatever, that that's going to be, it'll sap their energy, it'll sap their finances, it'll marginalize them to not be able to get new members and things like that. So what is your sense? There have been 930 charged so far from January the 6th individuals they expect a lot more before it's over yeah what do you think what what will what will all that mean i mean a whole bunch have pled guilty there've only been i think 38 39 that have uh, been found guilty of such serious crimes as uh, uh seditious, seditious conspiracy seditious conspiracy i always mess that yeah, i know it's <laughs> And, and there's still more trial. I mean, the Oath Brothers, there's another Oath Brothers uh, trial coming up, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the impact on these the Justice Department devoting hundreds of people to this project? What do you think will be the outcome? I think it's incredibly important. I think it might take hundreds of people, and it might be some of those people's most important thing they, they'll work on in their career. You know, it might end up being the biggest thing they've done, and I, I think that's important. Um, there were hundreds of people involved, thousands of people involved in this. There's some that are still unknown. Their identities are not yet known. And so I'm hoping that people don't just forget about this and rush it away, but that every single one of those cases 
is is run through the system and, and let's see how it comes out. Um, Do you find yeah. information when you're looking that the government doesn't have? And you do you do you ever say to yourself, I'm going to provide this to the Justice Department because they may not have found this? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a, it's one of those it takes a village situations. So, yeah, the skills that, you know, it, it just takes a lot of variety of different skills. And I, I know that some of the ways that I approach things as a data scientist might might not be um, part of, you know, traditional investigations and that kind of stuff. So. Typically, they'll come. To, they, they do come to me. They'll ask, you know, what's going on with the money here? What's, who's this person or whatever? What do you have on this? And sometimes I can help, and sometimes I can't. In the case of January sixth, I think, um, you know, I was most helpful in with with some of the groups, uh, the America First crowd, the Nick Fuentes's, the how are they earning money online? Some of the the pre planning for um, uh, the hype machine, you know, a, a lot of that. But there were other groups that I was just less knowledgeable about and was not able to help with but yeah it's definitely there's you know traditional investigative sources there's confidential informants and all that kind of stuff i don't get involved in any of that but the digital side i think is um you know there's always room to grow it's such a fast-changing um way of doing business that yeah they're not always equipped a couple of months ago uh, we all of a sudden had a story in our papers that a gentleman named Nick Fuentes was having dinner with Donald Trump and things kind of exploded. Lots and lots of copy. Did you know about him? When did you find out about him if you did? And what what can you tell us about him? I'm so glad you asked that because, yeah, I've been studying Nick's um, nonsense for a couple of years now, several years. So Nick is a very online internet performer who is active in that space we were talking about a moment ago, the video live streaming space. And so he, um, yeah, he basically has a nightly show or used to be nightly where he would go on his little video stream, post it to YouTube, people would watch and they would donate money to him. He got kicked off of YouTube for being grossly anti-Semitic and racist and then subsequently went down the chain of other platforms trying to find someone that would allow him to stay. He finally, around um, spring of 2020, settled into a platform called DLive. It's this like video game-oriented platform where gamers, video gamers, um, film themselves, stream themselves playing games and other people watch. I know if you're not like a gamer, this might sound really weird, but trust me, it's very popular. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah. He would go on this site, but instead of filming himself playing video games, he would run his usual political show. That was terrible. This website, though, also had a built-in virtual currency that you could pay people, and then you could cash that currency out into real dollars. So Nick glommed onto this immediately and started soliciting donations on this platform. I built some software to um, watch him do this on that platform. So... uh, collecting all of the transactions for not just him, but about 150 other people in, you know, in his realm, including some proud boys who were using this platform to, to do this, to, to, you know, spew propaganda and then get donations. I called this monetized propaganda. It's where they actually turn the, the words into money in real time. Anyways, built this software to collect down all the data, all the transactions, inbound, outbound, cash flow, who's giving, just all of that, built this huge system and then set about studying it. And what I learned was that Nick Fuentes was the top earner, probably on the entire platform of DLive, but definitely within the the sub-universe that I was studying of these extreme far-right actors on there. 
he was pulling down upwards of $10,000 a month. And in December of 2020 alone, through promotion of Stop the Steal and other, you know, the, the whole pro-Trump stuff that was going on then, um, pulled in about, I think it was $44,000 just that month. So he was extremely skilled at leveraging his hate and his extremism and in, in turning that into money, to real dollars. The question then is like, what does that mean? Does he just put that in his pocket or did he actually use that to support the events of January 6th or other things? And so that's what those um, you know, investigators were, were most curious about when they, you know, they, they wanted the data, they wanted to see what, what he was, how much he was pulling down and kind of where, what happened with that next. So it was a good project. It was very interesting and, and no one else was studying it at the time, so. What are you studying now? <laughs> uh, again, glad you asked that. So in about, what, 15 minutes uh, at noon, we're going to be launching uh, a really long investigative piece that my colleague um, and lead writer of this article, Michael Hayden, and I have been working on for about six months into the text messages from Alex Jones's phone. So I don't know if you're familiar with Alex Jones. He runs a oh, yeah. shop called InfoWars, <laughs> right? Okay. Is sort of um, in the news recently for the his the giant judgment against him from the victims of the uh, Sandy Hook massacre, which he claimed was falsely claimed was fake, and said they were all crisis actors. Anyways, in the course of that trial, um, his lawyers made the mistake of sending out uh, the contents of Alex Jones's phone, the text messages on his phone, to the um, plaintiff's lawyer. Those texts were made public. I think yesterday they're in the public record and we're going to be publishing a story on what we found in those text messages today and there's some you know it's it's everything you, you think might be in those text messages mostly i guess the most shocking thing to me shocking but in, in illuminating thing to me that was in the messages was just how much of a disconnect there is between the persona that that alex portrays on his show of this you know sort of strong man I've got all the answers. It's all a conspiracy. Let me tell you how it works. And then the reality of his life, which is quite frankly, a shambles and uh, a complete hypocrisy. So um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a banger as they say. You <laughs> it's going to be five parts. <laughs> so. I, I, I'm sure you know this, but Norm Pattis was his attorney up in Connecticut for the Sandy Hook trial. And he's also the attorney for Joseph Biggs. Here yeah. in Washington at the Proud Boys trial. Go back to Alex Jones. Yeah. Been around longer than any of these people. Yep. Why is he why is he up till recently? Why has he been so successful? Ooh, yeah, so he has a message that um it it purports to give folks the answers to difficult and uncomfortable questions. Why why would something like Sandy Hook happen? And he says, because it's a conspiracy and didn't really, you know, that he's got um, quick and dirty answers to really tough questions, things you don't quite understand, mysteries. He has a deep and commanding voice, right? So his presence, he peppers his show with all kinds of antics and outlandish statements and comments. So you kind of, some people probably tune in just to see some of that and end up staying for the conspiracies. He also has a pretty powerful uh, set of products that he sells. So he um, closely ties the sales of the products to the conspiracies that he's promoting on the show. 
So you feel he gives you a way of taking action, right? So if you're worried about fluoride in your water, you can buy his fluoride-free toothpaste. Um, yeah. So part five of our series actually on the text messages is going to go into some of that the business aspect of that. But um, but yeah, he's a he's a performer and he's he's been successful so far. Uh, it's starting to catch up with him though. Well, he was what was it over a billion dollars that he was fined? Yeah. Whether that sticks yeah, the- or not is another thing. The find was significant. It was, it was, it was good. I think that that really did send a message. I think what we're going to um, portray, though, in the story about the text messages is just how his life was already in chaos. Um, he, yeah, he he's just uh, it's a dark way to live, and I think that comes through in his own words in the text when he's talking to his family members, his colleagues, his father. Um, just how how uh, difficult it is to live this kind of life built on lies. Where can people see this study? I mean, this this podcast will run next week, so it will already have been released. But where can people yeah. find it? Yeah, it's going to be on the SPLC's Hate Watch. Southern Poverty Law Center. Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch. And I'm going to tell you, this is going to be a really big story, so they could probably just Google for, you know, Alex Jones text, and it, hopefully it'll come right up if we've done our job right. But, um, but yeah, it's going to be a five-part series. We'll have two pieces coming out this week and then two the following, and I think the, the third week we'll just have the one um, final story. Go back. And how did you get this information? These are texts from his phone. Yeah, these are texts from his phone, which were downloaded. We're not sure really why. Um, I mean, I was able to see how they were downloaded and the software that was used to do so, the dates and times and all that jazz. But it's a little bit unclear how they got into the possession of the lawyer who and then why that lawyer gave them to the other attorneys. A little bit fuzzy there. But in any event, they are now part of the public record. And so it was my job to go through and try to figure out, all right, how can we take these you know, 200 and some PDF files, just documents full of text messages and how can I turn those into a thing that will allow us to search them and study them, um, figure out a day in the life of Jones, you know, what, um, you know, March 15th, what, how, what did his text look like? So I built a system that would allow us to um, just ingest this much data. There's over 22,000 texts in the, the cache. So it was quite a job to get all those organized in a way that we could actually do reporting on it. Anybody else have the same information? I mean, to my knowledge, no, but well, I think there was one reporter from the Huffington Post who was given some of the texts about, I think he ran a story about Tucker Carlson. And then uh, the lawyer for the plaintiffs gave the text to the January 6th um, commission as well, or this, you know, the committee. How did you get Jones was <laughs> My colleague, Mike, developed, you know, developed a relationship uh, with the attorney, and we ended up having them as part of our background study about Jones. So we've Southern Poverty Law Center has been studying Jones through our research division for, gosh, it has to be years now. And so we originally got these as kind of background of like, what is he about? Would just give us more, you know, tell us more of what he believes in and that sort of thing. Now that they're part of the public record, though, we'll be able to actually publish on them. So a couple of quick things. Roger Stone who was very close to Donald Trump, and he ended up pardoning him, was close to Alex Jones and would go on his show all the time. Yeah. And also the last time we've heard from Matt Drudge, he was in the Alex Jones studio. Is he in Dallas or Houston? 
I'm not that familiar with Judge. We don't have text from him, but I do have a ton of text. I'm sorry, from I meant Alex Jones. Jones. Excuse me. Oh, name. sorry. Oh, he's in Austin. Austin. He's in Austin. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you were starting to talk about Matt Drudge. Do you know nothing about him? No, he he didn't figure in these texts, but Stone definitely did. Um, in fact, the story we're going to release tomorrow, this is part two, uh, is all about Stone and the Proud Boys and all of that. And so it shows Alex's relationship with Roger pretty clearly. Um, they, yeah, a lot, a lot of details in there. Um, and Alex also communicates pretty frequently with Joe Biggs, who you brought up earlier. He's one of the Proud Boys that's on trial right now. And he communicates with some some more smaller figures. There's a, a proud boy down in Florida who Alex communicates with frequently. And then another guy who's a kind of a T-shirt merchandise guy. And Alex talks with him as well. There's some others as well. I, I'm not sure you want to answer this. Do you have children? <laughs> I do. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ask this is, <clears throat> how? what's the age range? They're in college now, all three of them. What? What? After, after, <laughs> after your experience of seeing all this data and seeing how this Internet is used, what do you tell people about how they should approach this? Approach texting, approach uh, Facebook, approach Telegram. I don't care what it is. That is <clears throat> such an important question because I spend all of my day in this sort of track and expose world, right? Like to find the bad guys, figure out what they're doing. And my focus, you know, all the time is on on those questions. But really for normal people, they don't really care about that as much. They wonder, how can I prevent my family from getting involved in this? How my kids getting involved in this? What do I say to my neighbor who's you know t- t- trying to tell me about QAnon? So SPLC does have a really nice, vigorous division um, that's dedicated to prevention and partnerships with outside orgs that do prevention work to build resilience in communities and to, to kind of answer those honestly, more important questions, right? Like, how do we prevent this? And so there is a whole section on our website. I would, I guess if I had to point to one resource, I would say the um, the peril guide for parents is really, really strong. This was developed in partnership with um, American University and their team there called PERIL, um, which I can't remember what that acronym stands for, but it's about prevention and resilience in communities. And um, it the guide that, was, that we developed with them or that the, the rest of the team developed with them it tells parents how to talk to kids, tells caregivers how to give advice, how to um, elicit and really communicate with your with your student, with the young people in your life, so that you can he- kind of head it off at the pass before they start, you know, in on a video game and someone approaches them with these kind of ideas. So, so yeah, we do have a lot of resources there, and I hope that we continue to build capacity in that area. It's really important. Before I let you go, tell our folks that are listening how they can see your work. I would tell folks to start at the Hate Watch section of the SPLC website. So this is where we run all of our investigative pieces, and there's links out to a lot of these other um, projects that the Intelligence Project works on. Do you have a personal website <clears throat> that people can have access? I don't mean, I mean yeah. your, your past work. Yeah, I do. And it has a lot of links to my research studies and things like that. It's just at MeganSquire.com. So first name, last name. Well, I have 150 more questions, but (laughs) it's time for you to watch the the release of your six-month study. And Dr. Squire, thank you so much for uh, filling in the blanks for us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. 
please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.